Hello, welcome to Palladium's first digital salon. Um, I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee, senior editor at Palladium Magazine. We're joined today by Matt Palmer and Will Eden and a selected audience of friends and governance futurists. Hi guys, welcome to the show. Hey, hey there. Um, so for a bit of explanation before we get started, we're all in quarantine, so we're unable to run proper in-person events. So instead, we've decided to do online events for the foreseeable future. Um, so this is our first foray into that world, doing a digital salon. The salon will be recorded, released like a podcast. So you may be listening to this as a podcast. Um, and the plan basically is I'm going to moderate a discussion between Will and Matt about our topic for about half an hour. And then we're gonna open it up to questions from our audience. Um, so before we get started, I'd like to introduce our participants. First of all, we have Will Eden, who has previously worked at the Federal Reserve as an economist. He's previously worked at Teal Capital doing biotech venture capital. Um, he's been one of the loudest and earliest alarm raisers on this whole coronavirus situation. He's been at the forefront of a lot of, uh, a lot of the key advocacy points, um, social distancing, hospital capacity, bunch of stuff like that. Um, so, you know, we're all very grateful for, to Will for helping to raise the alarm on this and, and help contain the issue. Um, and, and I think as a point of pride, he's been in quarantine much longer than the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, I started about two weeks before um, I was uh, supposed to. <laughs> Great, excellent. Yeah, I, I think I was uh, perhaps a week after you, but uh, yeah, we've, we've, uh, we're all in it now. <laughs> Anyways, so then we have Matt Palmer. He's, hey, a, so he's a software entrepreneur who's been loud and early talking about supply chain risk and stepping up to actually start working on a project in that space, uh, working on manufacturing personal protective equipment mm -hmm. um, in the United States by any means necessary. And so Matt, anything else you want to add before we get started? Yeah, uh, right now we're, um, so I, I, I'll, be, I'll be transparent. I, I'm just going to pitch everybody. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody on here who can uh, deploy six figures of uh, capital. Well, we're also broadcasting so I, <laughs> okay. in the podcast. So the audience is potentially much larger than just the immediate audience. All right, good deal. So well, uh, uh, to, to everybody listening, um, I'm uh, working with several colleagues to spin up a, uh, spin up a mass manufacturer, an N95 mass manufacturing facility in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, using uh, uh using spare capacity uh at a couple different plants they have there um we have uh identified a supplier of the um uh, extremely scarce and extremely difficult to find melt blown polypropylene filter material uh and we are currently in need of capital uh from anybody who is feeling uh, uh like they want to be effective with their altruism um anyone who wants the, to be uh, a hero basically <laughs> yeah pretty pretty much uh our goal is to our goal is to onshore as much PPE manufacturing capacity as possible because we consider this to be a um, uh, both uh, a well, I mean, a national defense priority uh, in my opinion, um, and also a bit of a national disgrace uh, that this doesn't exist. Uh, that this doesn't exist in the first place. So, if that's something you're interested in uh, helping out with, please uh, reach out to me or one of the organizers. Um, 
of this uh, stream on on Twitter, and uh, we'll we'll get linked up. Wow. Yeah. So um, we're all very um, grateful to you for running that kind of project. Is definitely the kind of thing we need right now. Don't thank um, me yet. We haven't done anything. <laughs> right. Well, still, no, you've been, you've, been, <laughs> you've been trailblazing and, and uh, showing the way for, for a lot of people. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, that. so the reason I wanted to bring you guys together is to talk about generally the disconnect between the online community of epistemically astute amateurs and the official experts. Uh, I think we've seen a fairly significant disconnect there that's been showing up in, in multiple ways. And I want to talk about, uh, additionally, what we have and have not been able to do despite uh, lack of institutional power. So there's a lot of people who have been really calling calling uh, this the way it was going to play out and, and knew what was going to happen and were unable to move through official institutional channels, but a lot of stuff was done nonetheless. So this is the general topic that I wanted to get you guys to weigh in on. Um, so how did this look from our perspective in these strange circles on the internet to seem to know everything before the experts do? Um, and what have we been doing? So Matt, you've given us uh, your, your little pitch on what you've been up to. Mm -hmm. um, Will, can you give us kind of a, an overview of some of the um, advocacy that you've been doing and, and how it how you saw it play out um, when when did this first uh, kind of really become become your thing when did you start corona posting will <laughs> um, I probably should have checked when I actually changed my name uh, on Twitter to say that um, which I think was um, I think was probably in late February early March but um yeah I, I started following the situation in China mid to late January. Um, and it's a little bit hard to sort of remember what was going through my head at the time. But I think the thing that really tipped me off was that it was spreading asymptomatically. And as soon as I heard that, my first thought was like, wow, this is going to be really hard to contain. <laughs> right. um, and, uh, you know, at that time, it was still pretty much only in Wuhan. It was only a few hundred cases. Um, and so it started a little bit as a curiosity. Um, the first thing I did was I like, was like, hey, okay, so this is like pretty similar to SARS. How did SARS play out? Well, SARS spread to quite a few countries, but it ultimately did get contained. So for a while, my thinking was, you know, it's bad that this is happening, but we're probably going to be okay. Um, because I basically uh, thought that institutions were a little more capable than they uh, turned out to be. Um, yeah. The other thing too, though, is um, SARS was mostly only transmitted symptomatically. And so right off the bat, we knew that this would be harder to contain. Didn't make it impossible to contain, but just much, much harder. Um, so, you know, it started as this like intellectual curiosity and um, I think even after it started to get bad in China, but it, but it hadn't really spread kind of like throughout the world in a serious way yet. By like, you know, the middle of February, it was clear that China had really cracked down and was like actually turning the corner on it. You know, um, it, was, it was clear by like mid-February that like maybe China was actually going to get this thing under control. So from like, I mean, look, like I thought then like, okay, we have a model that works. It's not that widespread yet we've got this under control. Um, that turned out to be very, very wrong. <laughs> right. Um, so when did you realize you were wrong there? Yeah, so it started taking off in South Korea. 
right? Um, and, and it still sort of felt like, okay, that's unfortunate, but probably still containable via similar methods. Um, like still at this point, Singapore had contained it, Hong Kong had contained it, Taiwan had contained it. So it started to blow up in South Korea, but, but even then it was like, okay, well, we still have this playbook and South Korea did end up doing different things. Um, but, uh, it still seems to be effective, even though their strategy was somewhat different, which again, sort of gave me hope. Right. Um, but then basically seeing the complete sort of failure of the West to respond and then starting to see this exponential takeoff. Um, someone in the chat says I changed my name on March 3rd, which feels right. Um, so, uh, I would say the other really big flag for me was finding out that it was in Iran and that it was going uncontrolled spread in a country um, without, you know, the best healthcare and monitoring. Um, at that point, I became very, very, very concerned because um, even if every other country in the world successfully contained it, if you have one that's basically this like viral reactor, right? That's like throwing off tons where, where of cases. Where they're still I mean, licking the shrine. Yep, exactly. And very soon after it became obvious to the outside world that it was in Iran, every country that bordered them showed cases just going like this. Every single country, right? Yeah. So after Iran came out, that's when I was like, this could be, you know, much, much worse and probably we're not going to contain it, at least there, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, a lot of countries just continued to uh, drop the ball and with each like increasing week, I was like more frantic and I've been pretty much only posting about it nonstop for two weeks or more now. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, what did it look like with respect to, you know, you're watching the, the situation develop on the ground in, in these uh, other countries like China and Iran and South Korea. Um, and then how did that contrast, like your level of alarm contrast with sort of the stories you were hearing domestically here in the United States. Yeah, uh, zero uh, correlation. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, as recently as like one month ago, you had the media making fun of folks in Silicon Valley for starting to like do some social distancing measures. Right. Right. Um, which uh, in retrospect is a very bad look. Um, I think a yeah, lot of people I'm... are gonna obviously have a lot of egg on on their face or should or should right yeah i think i think we've seen quite a bit of that actually um there's there's a, a few screen cap comparisons going around now of of um you know the media making fun of the issue like a month ago and then now may now calling the people who are denying it conspiracy theorists when they were denying it a month ago and yeah so it's it's uh it's been interesting to see the sort of official information institutions just like flip-flopping manufacturing narrative real time in ways that, that in retrospect have seemed extremely irresponsible. So in fairness, I think we started to see this the most blatantly with Trump. Like he can just turn on a dime and just change his story and then pretend like he talked that way the whole time. And I think yeah. everyone in the country has basically just become this if they weren't before. I'm not totally convinced yeah. that it didn't always work like this. Um, it was just never so like blatantly obvious and maybe have so many people online calling out how inconsistent and how just completely hypocritical 
this whole thing has been. Yeah. So Matt, how did it look from your perspective? I remember I looked, uh, you had one very uh, important tweet, I think in 23rd of January or something where you were talking about the supply chain implications of this whole thing. Um, and, and that's been pretty yeah. well borne out and more. Um, so what did this look like from your perspective? Kind of how did you get onto the issue? How's your thinking changed and how's that contrasted with the narratives? Right. So um, a lot of this goes back to me uh, sort of uh, obsessively following um, uh, open source intelligence channels for the last several years. Uh, my, my interest in um, things like Bellingcat uh, uh, and uh, uh, various other, you know, various other sort of, uh, uh, you know, open, open ways of aggregating a bunch of information such that you have, for Twitter at least, uh, something comparable to a nation state intelligence agency, uh, you know, just happening there in the feeds. Um, that, that it was always an appealing and interesting thing for me. So um, those organizations started to target the Hong Kong uh, protests middle of last year, uh, started aggregating tons of information, started distributing it all over the place. And I'd been obsessively following that. Um, and those same channels started to report in late December, uh, lots and lots of viral pneumonia among relatives in central China. And, and to anybody who follows, uh, uh, you know, another thing I'm obsessively following, you know, this will be a pattern here. Uh, uh anybody who follows, um, uh, sort of epidemiological channels knows that uh, whenever you hear about uh, you know uh, interesting spike in viral you know viral pneumonia in central China, it's generally not a good sign. Right. So uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, basically, the you know the the alarm bells were going you know right around then. We we now know based on uh, uh, Kaishin's excellent reporting that uh, it was indeed spreading all the way back then, uh, that the uh, PRC government knew knew about it and uh, was hiding information on it. Um, so that started to break out into the Hong Kong channels uh, for like open source intelligence, you know, the OSN world. Uh, uh, after that, one of the first people on that was a guy on Twitter who goes by the name Comparativist. I definitely recommend following him, uh, Trey. Uh, yeah, so that started, that started to break out and it became clear to me that um, Given the given the the fact that PRC since you know since the opening has been uh, a huge exporter of people all over the world that uh, that 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 you know COVID would start moving along those networks very quickly in a way that was very difficult to contain if we didn't start taking measures immediately. So around that period yeah. of time, I started to let me let me just started, interrupt, interrupt you here, Matt. Uh, yeah, go ahead. What was the Twitter account you just mentioned? It was, it was uh, a little bit com unclear. Comparativist. Comparative. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Tanner just linked to it in the show notes. Great. Excellent. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. How's it going, Tanner? Uh, Tanner's feed also. If you want to follow interesting things in China, uh, his feed oh, yeah, is also totally. quite good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Scholars' stage. Um, so, started seeing that sort of thing pop up all over the place, and uh, yeah, it was just it was it was interesting because you know our first line of defense for a lot of these uh, for a lot of these um, uh, uh, outbreaks is. The, the quite excellent uh, international sort of biological perimeter defense that the various different virology uh, organizations out there have have you know have established that's how we that's how we can figure out that some random village in in Uganda has has a you know has a has a, a novel uh, relative of of you know Ebola popping up all over the place 
you know, we, we, you know, we're getting awfully good at finding hemorrhagic, you know, random hemorrhagic fevers in the jungle, you know, so it shouldn't be that hard to find, you know, find a, a, a new, a new coronavirus in, you know, in, 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 uh, in a developed country like China. Um, so yeah, I, it was, uh, from that point onward that I started trying to, you know, raise the alarm bells in whatever, you know, minimal way that I could. Uh, and, uh, it's been awfully frustrating to watch all of the institutions, um, particularly the press whose job it is to be ahead of the curve on stuff like this, um, just ignore it completely as it continued to get worse every single day. Yeah. So speaking of, of the press kind of not being ahead of this thing and, and not catching everybody up to how serious the situation was, um, what are your guys' estimations on how much was that narrative management and how much was that um, like, like deliberate planned sort of narrative management and how much of that was just, they were not kind of good enough at their job. I personally think it's cause they were not very good at their job. Um, it's the kind of thing that I think without a little bit of expertise in the subject, it's a little bit hard to see just from like looking at a headline number, like, Oh, how many mm -hmm. hundred people have it? How many countries is it in? Like, it right. just continues to sound like a small deal right without having the kind of underlying causal model of how these things actually spread yeah like i guess if you're not used to thinking yeah. about sort of the exponential process spreading through a network and you know thinking through the process of how it's actually going to get stopped um yeah you know you you look at oh you know there's a couple hundred cases in china of this novel pneumonia it's like oh, it doesn't seem like a big deal right and then and then some hated tech bros in Silicon Valley are making a big deal out of it and refusing to shake hands. And of course this becomes a, a point that you can make fun of them on. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think I, sorry, for Matt. Yeah. I, I think, I think the, the press is just bad at relaying specialist info or, or frankly just understanding specialist right. information in, in general. Um, and that is, you know, that, that is uh, in the sense that, that they're conditioned to do a lot of uh, uh, a lot of just regurgitation of, of, of people who are considered to be experts. In this case, you know, the expertise that they were turning to were a bunch of public health bureaucrats who absolutely do have an incentive to claim that all is well and that everything is under control. And, uh, you know, they, they just continue to do that again and again and again. I, I do think there was some narrative management, though. I do absolutely mm -hmm. think that's the case. I, I, think that, uh, I think that there are a lot of people who have a... Uh, particularly ever since the 2016 uh, election, uh, uh, this orientation towards towards um, explicit uh, attempts to prevent actors that they see as destabilizing to the current order from spreading what they consider to be disinformation. You know, you can see that with uh, Twitter's, um, you know, Twitter's uh, active like Weibo style spiking of of uh, of communications about coronavirus. Uh, yesterday, you literally cannot link to certain websites. Um, your, you know, your tweets, your tweets and DMs will get deleted. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an, it's an active attack on the, you know, on the, on, on the informational immune system that, uh, people like Balaji and other folks who were raising the, raising the alarm bells about this, uh, constitute. So yeah, I do think there's some active narrative management going on there. There are a yeah, lot I mean, of people who, who really like the idea that the authorities are always right. And, uh, those people are, they have blood on them. Straight up.
Yeah, I mean, I, I think by now it, it looks fairly clear that that they are definitely trying to manage public perceptions here, especially with you know stock market worries and and election worries and all you know the general kind of political order concerns um, that that you were talking about and and sort of perception of political order concerns. Um, and and I'm wondering sort of when it flipped from sort of incompetence to narrative management or whether it was, whether it sort of had elements of both sort of the whole time. Another thing I'd like to raise here actually is, is we need to disaggregate kind of official institutions and official experts here a bit, because from what I understand, the epidemiologists and the actual scientific community was, was yes. quite on top of the thing. Right. And it, it was right. the public health, totally. it was the, the bureaucrats <laughs> that were not, or, or were keeping it, keeping it under wraps and the journalists. I was literally getting into flame wars with people, telling, telling them, listen, like, you know, there, there's absolutely evidence that this is going on. And I would, I would get a reply like, no, the public health authorities say that this is fine. I would link directly to a virology paper or directly to uh, uh, the interview with uh, the Kaishen, the you know, very excellent independent news agency in China. Uh, uh, the interview that Kaishin did with the guy who managed the SARS response in PRC saying that this was the worst outbreak of his lifetime. And right. I, wow. would get, I would get blocked <laughs> or poo-pooed. It, it's ridiculous. Right. People can't, you know, the, the, there, there's so much conditioning around what people, uh, uh, you know, want to, want to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I see what you're saying. And, and, yeah, there's this big disconnect. I think one of the one of the ways this was put well and articulated well is there's this big disconnect between people who are reasoning directly about the evidence and directly about the models and, and directly trying to model the situation, and people who are reasoning primarily in terms of authorities and and established kind of lines of information flow and so on. And and you've seen this big disconnect, you know, the Silicon Valley, a lot of technical people, a lot of people who are really pressed up against reality with their companies and, and the things they're working on um, tended to be more on the side of raising the alarm uh, because they were directly reasoning about the problem and the kind of um, the established informational channels tended to be dominated by people who were uh, thinking in terms of the informational authority and the the sort of top informational authorities were not raising the alarm for whatever reason and, and so that whole system kind of ended up failing um, but if if I can like briefly defend the idea that there ought to be you know a lot of people taking seriously the the official information authorities like it is kind of necessary in a society that you have someone uh, so, someone somewhere like sorting through all the possible right. discourse that's happening and saying, here are the things that are important. Here are the things you need to be paying attention to. And, and that, you right. know, there's a reason that a lot of people kind of end up um, following those authorities. And, and I guess that the situation we're in is we end up having a crisis of either competence or will or, or um, a, Good, good intention uh, among those uh, among those authorities right now. We're having something's gone wrong there. Um, so I do think that um, that my thinking has changed on this a little bit. Just sort of seeing how how folks have uh, have started to respond now that the public health authorities are more kind of on board. Um, mm -hmm. I I'm starting to think the government was actually more constrained than I had thought by the really? people. Um, I basically think there's like sort of uh, there's sort of a feedback loop here, right? Where like 
the government can't really tell people that they have to take drastic action until the people are panicking. <laughs> yeah. And then to some degree, the people aren't going to panic until they're told something is wrong. And so my read of like the last couple of weeks has actually been the sort of like slow unrolling of like, hey, public, it's a little more serious. Hey, it's a little bit more serious. Hey, it's starting to get really serious now. Hey, it's really serious. We need to take drastic action now, right? Yeah, and and so there's sort of the uh, interlocked, very constrained system hypothesis that you're laying out. Another another hypothesis I've heard on sort of explaining that that slow rollout is is that's actually part of the narrative management. Is you don't want to just say like, okay, the government is going to take decisive action to to um, kind of limit and contain this issue before anyone has any clue what's going on. You know, that's very authoritarian. That's very China. We're not like that. Yeah, we, course. you know, we, we sort of do things as, as a, a public, uh, a public discourse. And so we take it much slower, uh, just as a matter of like kind of our ideological precepts and, so and perhaps those, that, perhaps that those are related. Be, that may be the case, but I, I, I do think that, that they should have been, Telling people to panic back when back when a modicum of public alarm would have actually done a lot of good and kept this crap out yeah. of the country, uh, or or really out of the you know the I'm not really out of the country. It's not the you know it's, that's that's not the big thing you need to worry about. But more like out of the out of the air transport network. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If if people if people had actually been listening to extremely credible you know uh, 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 scientific minds working on this back in the very beginning of January. Um, and been making uh, sensible policy on the basis of that, we would have we would have closed flights to China in mid January. We would have, um, you know, we would have uh, basically done everything the the Singaporean government has done, uh, or at least given people the opportunity to respond in a collective fashion, like the people of Hong Kong. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not that it's not that that either of those models are wrong it's that uh it's it's that we need a you know we we need to have an information infrastructure that allows us to actually drop into one of those models quickly during crises and right now we just don't have that yeah and yeah so um i will note that uh trump did close air traffic to china and everyone gave him a ton of crap for it Right. Like right. he was doing it later than we probably should have stopped that traffic. And the public was not ready for that. Right. Like, I think that's some evidence for this theory of mine that like people needed to be a little bit more scared before we could actually take serious action. Hmm. And then on the flip side, I've been like really surprised, actually, how much like supposedly half the country hates Trump and think that he's Hitler. Right. But like they're waiting for him for guidance about what to do during a pandemic. Yeah, and, and that, that's, that's the Democratic politicians included. I, I remember hearing yeah. some, some rumors uh, about that. It was interesting. Yeah, like he still, like for whatever reason, like is the national figure that everyone expects to be sort of taking point on how we respond to and think about this crisis. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is, uh, you know, he didn't change his mind until you know, uh, one story is that, that Tucker went, Tucker Carlson yeah. went and yeah. talked to him and said, look, this is actually really serious. Uh, and, and, uh, and actually got him to change his mind, which is interesting. Um, yeah. So there's, there's this question of like how constrained are the public authorities by 
the degree to which the public just like wouldn't accept or uh, sort of decisive action here. And, um, you know, we see this with the sort of spring break types and, and you've seen a lot of people uh, with, with these sort of um, narrowly libertarian kind of uh, responses to the thing of like, oh yeah, we don't need the government to help us with this. We don't, you know, this is not something that they should be doing and, or like, you know, I don't care. I'm not worried for myself or whatever. There's, there's just been quite a bit of public disobedience uh, though sort of orders have not actually been given as well because of the possibility of public disobedience, but just, just general like disarray in the, in the sort of natural chain of command there. Um, and I th will, I think that's what you're kind of bringing up is, is the government is actually constrained by, by the people and have to kind of bring, bring them along, which is a, a slow and painstaking process in a, in a crisis like this. Yeah. An another issue that, that uh, sort of speaks to sort of how much this is kind of just an informational system problem versus a general institutional decay problem is the testing and personal protective equipment availability problems. We have not oh, been yes. able to spin up testing and we have not had the supply chains worked out on personal protective equipment. And these are not matters of politics or information or anything. That's just like, is the capability there institutionally and, and, and in hardware? And I would, I would push back against that a little bit. Okay. I, I do think, I do think the the libertarians, um, you know that they they do get a lot of flack but one thing they're absolutely right about is that the regulatory state has been one of the primary impediments to this a hundred from the very beginning yeah yeah 100%. Like, yeah, yeah. The, so the, that's you know the cdc rolling rolling into labs at the university of washington telling people that they can't run a freaking uh, a, a freaking pcr test because you know because paperwork i mean i it, it's like something uh, it, it, you know, it ended up in a Reason Magazine profile, but it is something like out of a Reason Magazine profile. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is, yeah. it is such an obvious textbook case of 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 uh, uh, bureaucratic proceduralism imposing itself on 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 uh, on people actually trying to uh, do you know do things to, to you know in the public interest. And so I just uh, have to point out, yeah, like the parallels with the US story and the China story. In China, there was a doctor that realized there were a yep. cluster of patients, tried to publicize it, raise the warning, got mm -hmm. suppressed. There's a doctor at the University of Washington who thought she had a patient, ran a COVID-19 test in her own lab, published the results when the CDC was telling her not to, which mm -hmm. finally got people to wake up and take this seriously. Like, which one is the like totalitarian state here, right? Like right. they look, it's, just, they look yeah. the same. <laughs> it's yeah. almost like there are tons of functional similarities between big sclerotic <laughs> land empires. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and meanwhile, and meanwhile, supposedly authoritarian Singapore has been has been the most open and the most transparent actor in this whole thing. It's absurd. I mean, you know, that you literally go to the frickin' to the frickin' Singaporean health authorities dashboard. And they will they publish all these charts and graphs that are updated like instantaneously from their excellent you know unified uh, uh, unified data infrastructure for all their healthcare workers so that the public can see precisely what's going on at all times and this is this is a supposedly authoritarian state and yet they they have a level of transparency that that puts you know that 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 puts nominal democracies to to absolute shame I mean it makes you wonder 
about the language we use to describe these sets of systems. It's yeah, exactly. And, and this has been one of our points, ongoing points at Palladium, you know, as we examine different regimes around the world. Um, mm -hmm. the, the major difference, one of the major and most important dimensions is just the competence of the regime. And Absolutely. a lot of the other stuff that we say about regimes, you know, democratic, authoritarian, et cetera, are, tend to just be branding, tend to just be right. kind of these sort of high-level narratives that actually don't don't weigh in very much on on the day-to-day -day actual competence of the regime. So before we get uh, too much further into continued discussion here, which is very interesting, let's start uh, answering some questions from the audience. There's been some great discussion in the chat and some great questions. Um, I want to start with Misha's question for Matt. If you had 100k right now how much would that accelerate or how long before the first masks would be rolling off the production line? Uh, we, we don't know how, yeah, okay, so I can answer that very specifically. We don't know how long uh, it would take to uh, roll off the production line because we're still waiting on quotes from a couple different uh, suppliers of ultrasonic welding equipment. Um, part of the issue with, with that is that, uh, I, you know, these are very, this is a very limited, um, limited infrastructure uh, with a lot of dependencies on expensive expensive German toys and we can get into we, we can get into you know that an, another time I, I think uh, we'll right. probably owe you a piece on industrial civil disobedience that's going to be a point yeah there. that would be awesome um, we'd, we'd but, love I, to, would love well, to hear that <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um it involves breaking IP law aggressively <laughs> um oh, but uh the the uh what we could do right now is place an order with Lidol, which is one of the, uh, I think they're the second largest, uh, uh, they're the second largest uh, manufacturer of, uh, of N95 melt blown or N95 grade melt blown uh, uh, polypropylene. And um, right now we've been uh, shaking all the trees we can find to get a hundred grand or so to just go place an order with those guys so that we can at least get in their production pipeline for early April. Um, that, would, that would secure our ability to get this done. That, that's, basic, that's basically it. So that is what we would be able to do. We're probably going to start crowdfunding early next week but um, or over the weekend, but we really could use a $100,000 check right now. Like we, like I have, I have, I know exactly where I'm sending it. It would sit in our bank account for about 10 minutes. Uh, yeah, nice. we, we can deploy capital effectively right now. I wanna really underline that to anybody who's listening. Great. And, and uh, another part of that question is, are you doing this as a for-profit or non-profit kind of venture? Uh, we're, we're, we're not planning on making any money off of this. Uh, look, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a software engineer. Um, you know, I might go do manufacturing work down the road, but personal protective equipment is not something that, you know, that, that I find uh, intensely interesting uh, beyond its ability to make sure that my dad isn't walking into the ICU. He runs, uh, you know, with a bandana around his face next week. Um, right. Yeah, so I, I uh, you know, my, my, my interest in this is uh, primarily, you know, just uh, wanting to solve, you know, wanting to ameliorate an immediate need. Yeah. Um, we, as far as the vehicle we're using right now, we're, we're we have a, several very excellent lawyers trying to, trying to figure out, uh, you know, working on a pro bono basis for which we should thank them. Um, who are working on figuring out what sort of vehicle that we, uh, uh, you know, that would be appropriate for this. Uh, push comes to shove, I'll just end up running this through my consulting LLC and I'll take the hit on taxes. But I'd rather, I'd rather not. And I'd rather that people, uh, that, that people who would like to donate to this be able to. 
um, yeah. in a tax deductible fashion. It definitely smooths the smooths things out uh, quite a bit. But yeah, stay tuned to uh, uh, my Twitter feed and then the at uh, uh, Open PPE Project uh, Twitter feed as well for uh, official updates on this. Yeah. So about about the um, intellectual property aspect in particular, there's um, you know during wartime mobilizations, there's these interesting provisions for the government to just basically seize IP and for the yeah. war effort. And this is really the kind of case where that, that kind of thing needs to be happening. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I think we're officially in that state of the world as of a few days ago. Correct. Right. We're, yeah. we're there officially on wartime footing. Yeah. 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 They, they invoked yeah. that act. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, we actually looked at 3M's design and I don't think that's IP we want to steal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Ouch. No, I, I'll be honest, oh. like this is this is a category, this is a, a respiratory, <laughs> per, disposable respiratory personal protective equipment is a category where there's been near zero consequential innovation in the last several decades and it's just ridiculous. Uh, that's, that's pathetic, unfortunate. Yeah, all right. Um, Bonnie asks, how long do you think life will be disrupted and how long are we going to have to be doing the social distancing thing? Is it going to be a few months? Is it going to be a year? What do you guys think? That really depends. Yeah, that really, really depends. Um, In the situation where we choke this thing off effectively with our current lockdown, if we do that for a month, it's burned out of almost every host, right? There's still going to be a few floating around, but um, it's going to greatly shrink the numbers that we have to deal with. Then we could maybe do a South Korea, Singapore uh, solution where we don't actually have to be all that careful. Um, Assuming we have the testing capacity. Yes, the testing capacity is currently ramping up quite quickly. I'll know. That's great to know. Um, But uh, it's suffering a number of significant bottlenecks, largely because we don't build anything here, such as like reagents and even cotton swabs. Literally, we're running out of cotton swabs to test people. Like, this, oh. which, like, I, I just, like, I'm so furious about this whole thing. And, you know, Matt, you're absolutely right. Like, supply chain ended up totally killing us. It totally killed us. I really hope the next wave of, uh, uh, look, I mean, I'm a, I'm a committed, wild-eyed, ideological neoliberal. I, I like globalization. I think it's good. I think it's here to stay. But I really do hope the next wave of globalization is not driven by third-world sweatshops. I'd like it to yeah. be driven by American robots. Yeah. I totally hear you there. So anyway, if we manage to actually close this off, right? Um, if we like get almost everyone uninfected and then start to do contact tracing with phones, widespread testing, I think we actually don't have to, to, to change life that much and we will contain it. If we don't contain it, then the question becomes, do we have lifelong immunity or is this a seasonal virus? If this becomes a seasonal plague that we have to go through this every single winter, it could be a lot longer than a year, right? It yeah. could be every year. That's that's what the that's what the the WHO and uh, and the CDC people have been saying, kind of in in private communications uh, or or in journal communications. They they do think it's going to go seasonal, and that this is here to stay. That would be uh, quite concerning. So far, so far, it hasn't quite reached the level even of the flu. We're still actually in the early stages where this is the the major impact is still pretty hypothetical. But there is nothing particularly stopping it from getting quite big. Yeah. If you look at um, at like uh, syndromic surveillance, where you just like find the number of people that are having flu like symptoms at 
a given point, there are certain parts of the country where it's now above peak flu season. So okay. it's not going to be just the flu for any longer if it's not already. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're off of peak flu season, aren't we? Oh, yeah. well off now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, that, was, and so, that was early Feb. Yeah, I remember, I remember seeing a graph with uh, flu symptoms and there's usually kind of a spike in, in sort of the winter, basically. And then we had that this year with, uh, you know, a big spike of flu, flu symptoms in the winter, but then we're having a second spike of flu symptoms um, that, that's starting to, yeah, again, like you said, will overtake that peak. Um, and that must be the coronavirus, which is actually spreading, uh, you know, more than we're testing. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that specifically was in New York, and I'm not sure if yes, uh, that's right. If, I'm not sure how much that generalizes at this time. Syndromic surveillance across the country shows there are a number of regions in the country where you still don't really detect symptoms above baseline, but in several parts of the country, they all they like clearly clearly are, and the ones where they're not are still kind of marginal, and it's like it looks like the flu season's flattening off rather than falling, right? So those will almost certainly go like this over time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. Get this thing getting seasonal could get, I mean, eventually we would have to just go on a fairly serious campaign to, to squash it because otherwise I think it would become a very serious inconvenience. Um, what one thing, I've just let it go. Yeah, one thing I've heard floating around public health circles is mask month. So, you know, we pick uh, some period of time every year where we just all, we all wear masks all the time. And that would drive basically every respiratory disease down to close to zero if, if we started to do that. So I'm, I'm beginning to think that that might end up being a good idea, you know, every October or, you know, whatever. We just all, that's mask month and everybody's got a surgical mask on whenever they're in public and we just you know we just drive it down we drive that yeah. down to zero along with the common cold yeah, yeah totally I mean, like the it's just the flu like has made me now think we need to get rid of the flu with these same methods right let's end the flu yeah absolutely <laughs> like, why no, do we the, put up with the flu absolutely <laughs> But this is Absolutely. this reminds me of the the Hong Kong numbers where the yes, every uh, disease is falling. Yeah, they, yeah. because they <laughs> because they did an effective hygiene approach to this, uh, the mm -hmm. flu actually tanked as well. Uh, as soon as as soon as they got word of coronavirus, which is which is sort of heartening, right? It's like okay, well maybe if we get good at crushing these things, this won't be the only one we crush. Yeah. And to everyone who, you know. who, who's still got residual, like, you know, masks don't work, uh, propaganda in, in their, you know, in their, in their, in their decision tree somewhere. Um, that, that is objectively not true. Uh, yes. masks, masks work great. What masks do, uh, surgical masks of the type that, you know, that you see commuters wearing, um, in Asian countries quite wisely. Uh, what they do is they protect you from direct droplet spread, but they also catch a bunch of viral matter if you are sick or if you are if you are an asymptomatic carrier. So when they're catching all of that viral matter, it it starts to throw thing you know it starts to drive uh, it starts to drive things down down to zero. I will also say that with the you know all of the facial recognition technology coming coming out these days, the civil libertarian in me really likes the idea of a lot of people masking up in public. But you know we'll see. So. What do you guys think about whether this has 
uh, given us enough of a wake-up call that we're going to be much more effective in the next pandemic, or are we going to substantially change our uh, procedures here? This is a question from Jessica Dang. I you want to take know. this one, Will? Oh, God, I don't know, <laughs> which is so tragic, right? Um, I think some of it depends what the what the shape of the of the pandemic looks like to a certain degree. Though probably respiratory viruses are are the thing that would spread the fastest mm -hmm. anyway. So this is not not quite the maximally bad condition. Um, yeah, what do I actually think? I think the strategic reserve will have more stockpiles, which will help. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether the like international institutions are going to be better. Um, the World Health Organization definitely seemed to be driven by politics and trying to keep relationships with China happy. Um, right. China didn't let the US CDC in early, which was another sign that this was more political than about stopping the crisis. Um, it's tough to imagine all of these political concerns going away. I think it'll be easier to convince the population that something's more necessary and the media might like be more on board with treating it more seriously sooner. Um, so I do think pieces of it will be easier and pieces of it won't. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think our, our, our existing perimeter defense systems are very good, very, very good. Like I, like I said, you know, we, we are typically like, you know, outbreak to outbreak to, uh, of say like a, you know, novel hemorrhagic fever in the jungle in Uganda to, you know, to MSF on the ground, you know, like CDC and WHO on the ground attacking the problem. Like, you know, we're, we're incredibly good at that. Where that doesn't work is central China where, you know, where the CCP won't let people go and uh, yeah. won't let people go and and operate that extremely good epidemic surveillance infrastructure. So uh, the the perimeter defense stuff, I think, I think is is quite good. I, I'm I'm not very optimistic though about our ability to actually contain large scale, uh, you know, large scale outbreaks once they do get past that perimeter defense infrastructure. Because um, you know, if you look at the Ebola crisis, which was you know, which was very, I mean, terrifying and should have been the wake up call that. You know, prevented this, uh, or if you look at the response now, the issue isn't even at the level of of our public health authorities. It is at it is it is at every level of Western governments. We are we are screwing the pooch at at an enormous scale, and it's obvious that yeah. that under this level of pressure, every every facet of our institutions is 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 uh, you know is crumbling like a you know like like a you know like a like a paper airplane hitting the ground. It, it's, it's, it's so obvious that we just don't have, you know, the, the institutional uh, gas to respond to, you know, pandemics. So, you know, right, right now. So if you just play out the institutional decay that has been happening for the last, you know, at an accelerating rate for the last 40 years, you play that out another 20, uh, you know, uh, uh, up to, you know, when we see, something come out of Brazil or whatever. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't think ceteris paribus, we actually do a better job um, after this. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, a lot of that, I don't know. A lot of this really depends on what kind of larger institutional reform this spurs, right? And and this right. this actually gets into another question uh, from Gabriel, which is, um, what are sort of the possible kind of upsides in terms of institutional rebuilding um, as a result of this thing? I mean, you know, societies get hit by these shocks occasionally. It really sucks in the moment. It's going to be awful, but but they are also um, uh, you know, a shock that forces a, a renewal often. And, and so what do you guys think about, about the chance that this whole crisis spurs, um, you know, more widespread institutional renewal that can, that can get us ready for the next one, but not just the next one, but, but kind of, uh, renew other aspects of the system. What do you guys think? Well, about I that? think that it, might. Um, something that's tricky about a complex system is that it's hard to predict in advance what's going to cause damage and what's going to cause an adaptive response. Yeah. And my fear is yeah. that this could end up being Absolutely. damage instead of adaptation. Um, with a particularly sort of sclerotic bureaucracy, I think if there's a positive movement, it's adding another layer of bureaucracy that just overrides the other ones. Not that the other ones are going to go away, right? Both the CDC and the FDA massively dropped the ball. Do you really believe either the CDC or the FDA won't exist after this? Right? Like that's, that's hard to imagine. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Maybe what we get is like the executive branch really puts its foot down and just like cuts a ton of laws, right? Like that, that, that I could see maybe happening, right? Something like if there's ever an emergency, you know, pandemic situation, the FDA has to automatically grant the, you know, authority to run a test or something, right? Like you could imagine something like that gets enshrined, right? Largely by kind of taking away existing regulations. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think given our current state, we're much more likely to just layer on something else than we are to actually fundamentally fix the parts that are broken. So that's that's with the current uh, ethos of the system. Matt, were you going to say something? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think that we will attempt to layer something on, but I think the credibility of federal public health authorities, uh, uh, both in the eyes of the public and in the eyes of, of, of municipal and regional health authorities is completely spent. Um, I do not see I do not see uh, university, um, you know, university hospitals, uh, like, you know, university research hospitals. Uh, I do not see municipal uh, or state level public health authorities taking anything that comes out of the CDC's mouth seriously ever again, nor should they. I think uh, when something like this comes down the pike again, it's going to end up being a much more distributed response, which means it's going to be worse in some places and better in others. Um, you know, and, and frankly, I think that's probably probably the outcome that's 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 optimal so i think i'm actually less sure than you that the state and local authorities aren't going to listen to the national authorities again i'm just updating that direction so hard seeing this whole thing play out now yeah like none of the localities wanted to take action before they got a higher up on board um right yeah they were all fairly fairly timid in this thing even even though the uh you know, the force of, of moral righteousness was definitely with them and, and the force of necessity. I mean, certainly um, there were one or two notable examples. Um, I yeah. would say like here in San Francisco, the mayor declared a state of public emergency before there was the first confirmed case in San Francisco because it was obvious to everyone that it was spreading in the Bay Area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, we got the first 
confirmed community spread a couple of days after she did that. Right. So like, that's the kind of foresight which someone who's actually like in touch with the situation should be showing here. Right. Also New York state, not New York city, New York state, like, their governor has actually been on top of this thing. And yeah, I was impressed by New York. Yeah, absolutely. Like they're leading the charge, you know, but I will say like something that both the Barry and New York have is they're two of the like hardest hit places currently. Right. Right. Um, Seattle's maybe the outlier of, 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 of being even harder hit, but still not really getting ahead of the problem. So I don't think it's a coincidence that that future governor of uh, the future governor of California, current mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner, is uh, ahead of the, or was ahead of the curve on on uh, this, you know, on, on the coronavirus situation, but also ahead of the curve on the housing situation and ahead of the curve on the homelessness situation you know, yeah. months ago. So so, you know, you do you are starting to see. Um, you know, a much more effective, you know, London, as you, as you said, London breeds early state, state of emergency declaration. You are starting to see a lot more state and regional authorities or uh, state and local authorities uh, take this sort of thing seriously. And I can't stand Mar- uh, Mario, Mario Cuomo, uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, credit where it's due. Uh, he is doing a good job with this. So, Matt, to, to sort of answer your um, prediction that the state and local authorities might stop listening to the, the higher ups and, and start doing sort of more independent action. I think, I think the sort of counterpoint on that is that, you know, it's very easy to imagine right when the thing is happening, um, things changing, it seems like a very, a very powerful um, situation to, to change your mind. But uh, these these changes tend to need to be institutionalized for there to be a lasting consciousness of the thing. Um, and, and the default really is that public memory kind of fades away. Everyone forgets about it and goes back to the kind of the standard operating procedure, uh, whatever that is. And, and so I think any kind of institutional change in behavior really depends on institutional reconstruction I would put one caveat on that, which is I agree that the institutions, you know, ideally should kind of like get this figured out and uh, and uh, change themselves. But even with something like the 2008 financial crisis, a number of people gained status and a number of people lost status, largely because of what like if they saw it coming or not and what they did. Yes. And, you know, like we talk about like Nassim Taleb, right? Who would give him any time of day at all if he didn't sound the alarm in like 2007 right, Bro, what like, are you right. Deadlift? no one likes that guy right no one would listen to that guy He's yeah yeah no, it, right yeah his his point is much more powerful given that 2008 actually happened yeah so i think we could see something like that coming out of this where like a small number of people like get listened to and have a platform that didn't before yeah i think that's yeah. a very important um kind of prediction of how this actually affects things. I think, you know, one of the things I've been seeing here and that I've been calling and talking about is the degree to which this is really causing the victory of, of certain themes in the discourse and certain like people who have been saying things about, you know, state capacity, who have been talking about the dangers of kind of like offshoring the entire supply chain um, a large number, institutional decay, a large number of 
issues that people have been talking about and that have been addressed in certain circles and not others. And, and right now, this situation is, is really resulting in a transfer of credibility um, that I think will be partially permanent. I think, I think it won't necessarily just fizzle out. I think there will be a lot of it that fizzles out, but there will be some things that, that you know, with this salient in the public imagination, um, certain ways of thinking are going to be uh, seeming a lot more natural over the next couple of decades. So Tanner Greer has asked a very long and complicated question. So let me just let me just try to read through that and see what we think of it. Um, he's currently writing a history of the United States in the 21st century. One of the extraordinary things he's noted is the amount of time elected officials spent with crisis management. And crisis management really means public relations, or as we've called it, narrative management. Many weeks, the national security advisor or the security state spend more time, or the secretary of state, sorry, uh, spend more of their hours trying to shape the narrative and coverage of events than actually trying to shape facts on the ground. The majority of these crises are not mentioned, are not remembered a month later. So, is this this is the public? This is the pattern of public action: put more effort into narrative management, narrative management than crisis resolution. Is it? It's a. It's been going like this for two decades. What do we need to do to change that? Is this just an inevitable feature of democracy caught in the grip of the news cycle, or is it possible to incentivize and focus on action instead of spin? So this is a. I think that's a very deep question. I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say about that. Tanner, uh, when when that book comes out, I will absolutely pre-order it. Uh, in fact, I'd like to I'd like to read a preprint if you'd be willing to share. That sounds absolutely amazing. Um, I, I think we need a greater degree of independence for essential institutions. You know, the Fed, uh, uh, the 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 Fed can go and act rapidly and without having to ask anybody. Um, and that has been what has kept us from, you know, from from having a a complete and total financial system collapse, as opposed to a, you know, a seventy five percent partial uh, <laughs> financial system collapse, right? Like you need you need people you, you need uh, uh, unconstrained, ideologically, uh, you know, uh, ideologically low voltage um, expert institutions that can do things effectively, quickly and impactfully. And when you don't have that, you get what we have right now. Um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, you, you think back to, for example, the, um, you know, what, what, uh, what the British foreign office was able to do back in the 1800s without ever having to go check in with parliament. You know, they they were able to, you know, they were able to conduct Britain's foreign policy almost as a peer to parliament uh, uh, rather than, you know, rather than as a, uh, a subject institution, uh, even though parliament could ultimately just take the funding. Yeah. Um, the I, I think so I think a greater degree of institutional independence is how we how we uh, avoid that trap. But I don't think that's going to happen in the current in the current, you know, under the under the current uh, American political regime. I don't think that's going to so happen. So it sounds at all, like I the think. answer is yes. This is an inevitable feature of a democracy, and therefore we need less democracy. This sounds sounds kind of oh, like the answer. Yeah, I mean, well, well to, to put some nuance on that, uh, like we recently published a review of the book Ten Percent Less Democracy on right. Podium. And right. the idea there is like, okay, we we don't necessarily just have to write off democracy. We can just look at the successes of institutions like the Federal Reserve um, and say, well, maybe we just need more of that kind of thing. What are the areas where 
people are getting too caught up in this narrative management stuff and, and you know, free those institutions from those pressures. Um, and, and that's, so it doesn't have to be something radical, though perhaps radical things are called for, but, but you can imagine this just 10% less democracy version of that. I think system of government changes are called for at this point. That's another, that's another. Yeah, I mean, it's like interesting to use the Fed as an example, because what kind of actually makes the Fed work? Like, why can't it be independent, right? And it seems like there's this sort of one feature that folks have sort of decided gets to be handled by someone else. I mean, there's like a lot of unaccountable bureaucracy in the executive branch in general, right. um, but we don't seem to treat it as independent. We don't seem to treat it as ruled by technocrats either. But like, what's the difference between the Fed and the entire rest of the government, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's a very important question. Like, um, why I is the Fed different the than the CDC? Well, the right? Fed has a different, uh, you know, the Fed has a very important set of customers, you know, the, the, the banking system. Um, and I think that that is, that is part of why they're able to, you know, why they're able to, to move independently. Now, granted, that should it necessarily be that way? Should we have that sort of monetary system? That's a point for debate. But you know, you, you could do a lot less, you know, a lot less, or sorry, a, a, a lot worse than than what we than you know the setup that we presently have for monetary system management. Yeah, I mean, something like having a CDC that was as independent as the Fed, but had the ability to shut down the entire U.S. economy in order to stop a virus. I sort of have a hard time imagining that we would do that. Right, but right. they don't they don't necessarily need to have the the you know the authority to shut down the economy if they do have the authority to for example institute temperature checks at you know at at on on flights without having yeah. to go through uh, homeland security. They they could uh you know they could conceivably have the ability to go and 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 essentially commandeer parts of the federal infrastructure to you know to in the in the in the public interest during emergencies and i think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to have um you know and it's 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 very you know that there's plenty of precedent for it uh, there's this great book called um called contagion it's i'm pretty sure it's the it's it's an academic work on on sort of the spread of trade and disease uh from you know from the from the you know the plague of justinian onward and uh they it, it uh you know, it, it talks a lot about how Italian city-states uh, uh, during times of epidemic would appoint some sort of independent, you know, independent council of, uh, you know, of, you know, usually a couple merchants and, you know, a, a couple merchants and whatever passed for doctors, usually a priest or two. And they would go, they, they would go take over the import-export policies of, you know, of the port of Genoa or whatever and start putting people in the lazaretto for 14 days. You know, so that they can see if they had buboes, you know, popping up all over their body, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think it's clear that that sort of institution is is required in this specific instance, in addition to in addition to the perimeter defense stuff that we have. Let's uh, move on to another question. Bern Hobart asks: If we do test and trace, is that something that will be done by the private sector or the public sector? And um, does this kill HIPAA? Uh, it shouldn't. Uh, it should kill HIPAA, but it probably won't. Is uh, the sad, <laughs> sad thing. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, testing absolutely can be done by the private sector. Tracing is an interesting question, right? Um, 
there's this very real question going on right now around who do we trust with our data? Because cell phone tracking has been one of the major things that every East Asian country that has successfully contained this has used, right? They know where every single person is because we have one of these on hand at all times. That does contact tracing for you, right? This could be a fully automated system, right? Like Palantir could just solve this problem tomorrow, Given right? The data, yeah. Given the data. Indeed. And we were already having this whole pre-existing debate around the role of privacy and tech companies. I'm a little bit worried that just because of the political implications, the private sector is mm -hmm. not going to want to do it. And for a lot of reasons, I think the public sector isn't necessarily going to be able to swallow that and people just go along with it. Well, so even, even if you could swallow it and, and get the mandate to do it, um, just like negotiating the the transfer of data between agencies like who actually has the data right who has access to that surveillance data and i guess like police well, can, can subpoena Prism, it or... the nsa has access to a lot of that data <laughs> or at least it did yeah did for, have, for foreign until, entities okay. only yeah but do they exactly. have uh, channels of information sharing with the rest of the government and they shouldn't like like no, there's a lot a of right there's a lot <laughs> of uh there's a lot of sort of institutional barriers there that aren't just will, I think. I am terrified of the states, of the security state implications of, of, of this. I think that they're going to use this as a, as a uh, power grab. Um, and I think they're going to get away with it. And, and yeah, as, 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 as I said earlier, you know, you, you have, you have messages disappearing on Twitter right now, as if we're working on Western Weibo. And it's, um, you know, I think that's a, I think that's an indicator of things to come. And I think it's completely unnecessary to go do that because you can go look at Hong Kong where trusting government is basically zero. Uh, and they were able to stop this completely with a bottom up, you know, with a bottom up implementation of everybody just going and wearing masks. You really don't need to get a whole lot more complicated than people just practicing sanitary, uh, uh, you know, pr practicing good, you know, good sanitation. And good, good luck getting Americans to do anything sort of public spirited. Coordinated. And, well, <laughs> I don't. It doesn't even need to be public spirited. It can just um, be panic, you know, panic or self preservation. Self yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, I think it's incredibly, um, I think it's incredibly naive to suggest that 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 we need to go uh, knock down uh, firewalls that we have against the security state. Uh, I, you know, firewalls that we have against the security state uh, extending its its power, uh, you know, to go implement only one version of a workable solution to uh, to something like this. Uh, I, I think that people who who uh, suggest you know a, a massive um, deployment of the security state to go fix this uh, are are clueless and do not realize how many guns there are in this country. <laughs> well, yeah. So yeah. A more a more restrained statement of what you're saying is that there are. Um, I don't do restrained statements. Yeah, okay, okay, yes, but but this is a responsible publication that we have to do very restrained statements of all these of things. Course, but, of course, of course, of uh, course. No, but but I, I think uh, to just rephrase, it's there are important barriers within the government uh, and discipline about how we use the powers that we have that um, that you know ought to be maintained. And what you're saying, right. I think, uh, or or related to what you're saying, is that. Some of these things, especially around the, the role of the security state domestically, um, those barriers and those those sort of limitations in how we use the power may be uh, more important than 
than sort of the, the expedience of the moment. And, and we I should be, yeah. we should be kind of keeping, keeping a vigilance on the larger question of disciplined government, not just the, uh, the, the immediate need. And, and like you said, there are many other ways to solve this yeah. though. Yeah. I, I'm not necessarily sort of taking, taking one side or the other. I'm just kind of trying to phrase uh, how I understand what you're saying. Yeah, well, that, I guess I wonder, of it. is there any way by which we can plausibly expect the government to like hand this power back after they use it, right? Like, is there any way, shape or form, any institution, any structure we could set up that could, that could actually guarantee that it's just this once? No. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the thing, right? It's very difficult once you get a ball rolling to stop the ball from rolling. Once you have a, a bureaucracy that's job is to kind of go and surveil people for public health issues, then, you know, that it's going to find ways to continue operating. Um, and, and so that's why I think it, the sort of discipline is, is uh, and foresight is especially warranted in these right. things. Whenever you're spinning up some new piece of machinery, you got to be careful. Is this something we actually want to be sticking around? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, in many cases you want to think very hard, uh, you know, the way we do about laws, uh, or at least we ought to about laws and precedents. Um, before yeah, I, I do still wonder if there's a purely private solution to the tracing problem that does rely on basically mass voluntary sort of opting in um, and like right. very selective reveal of necessary data, sort of if and only if you've, you, you have been exposed, right? Like, isn't that the way Korea or Singapore did it? Like there was, there was some, I thought I saw something to that effect that, that they act, someone had actually done this um, voluntary thing where you, you, everyone downloads an app, the app kind of keeps track of uh, where you are. And I think somehow they, they uh, notify you if you've been in contact with someone and then allows you to then upload your, data and so in, it's in a way where it's uh the, the data is not being centrally collected but is being um submitted in a decentralized way that, that keeps there from being a central database of like general purpose where has everyone been uh i'm not I sure whether know. that actually happened but I, I thought i saw something to that effect yeah, I should probably look into the Im implementation details a little bit closer, but I didn't think there were any that were voluntary, universal, and private. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm not sure how these things work. It would be very good to look into that. Uh, we should definitely do that. So Anarud asks, do we think the media will face any repercussions uh, for this? Will there be uh, anything that's going to change the journalism industry out of this? Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think that's that's sort of a fair. That was our uh, bestest that, answer yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, their incentive structure is chaos. They love chaos. I mean, the, the, you know, the 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 press is uh, absolute trash and has been absolute trash throughout this whole process, and probably will continue to do so. When I say that, I mean particularly the you know the the the, the press release and hot take driven political press, uh, Vox. Um, for example, uh, just they really showed their true colors uh, uh, throughout all of this. So we'll see. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone there that's going to forcibly hold their feet to the fire. Um, of, of course not. Of so course. So why would of they change? Not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they haven't. You know, they 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 haven't uh, uh, 
you know, there, there have been zero internal repercussions for, uh, uh, you know, for the, the stories that they wrote earlier on that now have, you know, that will have body counts. Yeah. So another question from Peter. Um, he's curious about the backstory, what's going on behind the split between testing capacity and personal protective equipment availability. They are, you know, the testing is at least ramping up, but the personal protective uh, equipment is still quite scarce. Mm -hmm. What are the kind of factors in, in American industry that are accounting for that? Um, so I know the testing story pretty well, and I know pieces of the protective equipment story, um, but I think Matt can probably do that one better. Yeah, you do testing, I'll do PPE. Sure. So um, there are lots of labs throughout the U.S. that are very, very good that basically could have gotten a test up and running at any point. And um, generally, the FDA is a little bit looser with a diagnostic test. Um, particularly, there are categorizations that are basically tests that are sort of only used by the doctor for informational purposes. Those are generally regulated much more loosely. Um, so there are very, very broad certifications that the FDA can give you that will allow you to basically just do whatever you want in the lab if you aren't like handing someone a drug, right? If it's like literally just a test. The problem is that once the CDC declared that this was an emergency situation, it activated a different pathway inside the FDA, um, something called emergency use authorization. And that meant every time someone to, like wanted to run a test for this virus, they had to get a waiver from the FDA that allowed them to do that. Oh, and the How FDA did, what, wrote- What's, what's the what? justification for that? <laughs> so supposedly what they're trying to do is they're trying to stop you know, just anyone off the street from, you know, selling their like, you know, COVID-19 test that is, you know, obviously false, right? And just right. selling that to make a profit at expense of folks who are scared. So what the FDA did, they gave an emergency use authorization only to the CDC. So they gave a, a, a legal monopoly only on the CDC. So then it was up to the CDC to make all the test kits that we would need, right? Yeah. They botched it. The CDC literally messed up the test. <laughs> they didn't get the reagents right for the test. They ended up particularly trying to make a much more complicated test. It wasn't just yes or no, do you have COVID? It was trying to like diagnose a whole range of different diseases, not just COVID, so that you could actually do do like one test and then say, oh, well, you have the flu or this or that or COVID, right? We just needed a yes or no, do you have COVID test? So it was overcomplicated and they blew it. So it took about a month later, but the FDA finally said, all right, we'll give emergency use authorizations to any of those labs that we'd previously allowed to just do diagnostic testing in general. And that's it. All they had to do was just make that one change. And oh, it took man. them a month. So now everyone is scrambling, trying to get the testing up and running because they weren't legally allowed to do it. And as we mentioned, a doctor at the University of Washington was the one who illegally did the test to inform people that COVID was spreading in the community. And, and they, so, weren't, they weren't spinning up the tests in anticipation that they might be allowed real soon? I mean, a few people have, right? 
for research purposes, right? right Which is right. how we started to find out about community spread at all because the CDC produced zero viable tests after like a few hundred. So that was just an absolute horror show. The FDA finally changed their mind. Now every lab in the country is scrambling to get it up and running now that they can. And what we're finding is we don't make reagents in the country. We don't make oh, cotton swabs in the country. Oh, right? man. So every, every lab now is fighting for supplies. Like there are universities sending out emails to the alumni saying like, hey, if you're like a tinkerer and you have some of these tools like sitting around, can you send it to our lab, right? Like, like that's, that's the level of just like, just crazy scramble in this system, which, you know, quite frankly, like should have been on this, you know, two months ago. Huh. Interesting. And Matt, how's the uh, personal protective equipment side look so, like? So the question was, how do we get? How did we get here? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's the macro, and then there's the there, there's the macro reasons for this, and then there's the then there's the, the the specific reasons. So back in back back in the the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, you know, obviously tons and tons of stuff got offshore. Uh, one of the things that got offshore is, uh, you know, basically any sort of, uh, uh, you know, small single-use plastic widget. Um, that sadly involves, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically all personal, all all disposable personal protective equipment. Yeah. Um, so basically, all of that got moved overseas. Um, you know, over over the years, uh, Kimberly Clark was one of the last companies to finally make the jump and they did so because uh you know because because everybody was feeling cost pressures and you know and 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 uh everybody wanted to shave a few pennies off of the you know off of the masks they were using so they they uh moved it all overseas um you know the government uh, uh the government uh made the determination that since of course we have this great perimeter defense infrastructure uh you know pandemics don't happen anymore we solved that problem uh, so they cut the uh, so they cut the 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 um, they they cut the national stockpile uh, down. We only have 50 million of them sitting around. I, I think last I checked, um, almost all of those have been you know are, are in the process of being deployed right now. They'll run out in you know very shortly here. Many of them won't even make it to hospitals. Um, and uh, yeah, so that that's that's the that's the macro reason we uh, we don't make things here anymore. Um, you know we are. Uh, we are a, you know, we're, we're an industrially hollowed out country that decided uh, at a strategic level a little while back that it was a good idea to take manufacturing of, of, of almost everything with the exception of, uh, you know, aerospace components, some cars and a few other little things. Um, and we decided to go move that overseas. And I think that's a, that's a big um, discussion that we need to have uh, after this, you know, do we want American robots to be doing this or do we want uh, overseas sweatshop workers to be doing this? Well, we, we got a lot of uh, BS jobs that could be redeployed into manufacturing yes, we as do. well. Yes, we do. I couldn't so agree more. We could, we, we've got a lot of human Nine, workers as well available. 95% of the people working in HR would be, would, would be better social, or <laughs> would be a greater social utility um, in, in, uh, uh, in, in, on a factory floor. Um, so there's, there's, uh, there's, so there's that, um, in terms the of the immediate problem, in terms of the immediate problem, uh, basically the, 
the outbreak started in China. And as soon as the outbreak started, um, PRC basically uh, uh, using a number of different laws that they, um, you know, that they have on the books, nationalized just a ton of different, uh, ton of different uh, uh, production capacities all over the place. Um, one of the things they also did is they, uh, they, they went and bought up um, almost the whole world's, you know, uh, uh, stockpile supply of melt blown N95, uh, or sorry, of N95 grade um, melt blown uh, polypropylene, which is the primary, uh, which is the primary filter media that people use. So, so we, you know, the, the machinery for for melt blown is not, you know, for, for turning melt blown pe uh, uh, polypropylene into into masks uh, is not that complicated at all, uh, which is why my team and I have, you know, are 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 able to, you know, are able to address this, uh, but. Uh, the, the the problem quickly became um, you know la lack of uh, lack of this material and uh, uh, you know most of the fabricators for this are in are in China there are some in the European Union there are some in the United States but the, the lion's share is in China and uh, what we're what we're dealing with right now is is a upstream scarcity in addition to the lack of uh, manufacturing capability uh, here in the states so. Um, yeah, and and be beyond that, uh, you know, be beyond that, you know, the the, the macro case and uh, you know the, the macro situation and the immediate uh, material scarcity, were, you know, we we just didn't have enough of these things stockpiled. There was a you know there was a conscious decision to underprepare uh, for something that people considered to be unlikely, and um, and here we are. Wow, that's a, that's a fairly good answer to that question as far as what happened here uh, and, and what's the, the comparison between the test kits and the personal protective equipment. Um, Chris Gillette asks, why is this particular event going to drive change? Um, how is this particular event going to drive change? A lot of people are, are optimistic that it's going to that it's going to change things. Uh, why will this particular event change or not change things? I think we've I think we've touched on some of these aspects already, some of these questions. Um, but I think there's more to say there. Just like what is is this going to sort of break the camel's back uh, on on things, or is this just another kind of blip on the in the the news cycle? Ultimately, even if even if it's a big one, um, what's uh, you know there were other things that that showed serious dysfunction. Katrina, twenty sixteen election, you know before that Iraq war. Um, it it's been becoming obvious that there's something seriously wrong with the system for a while. What's um, is this going so, to be the different one, or is it going to be more of the same? Yeah, I think with like each of those examples, I could sort of come up with a story in each case why it didn't result in change. With like Iraq and Afghanistan, like it was mostly volunteers, right? And these were mostly volunteers from like parts of the country that the coastal elites have no exposure to, right? And like right. we took on more debt to fight those wars, but like we seemingly have an infinite capacity to finance our state, right? So like- yeah, debt is just numbers in some wizardry. <laughs> yeah, and it's like sort of, horrible to say that but i think that's how it is to almost everyone in the country yeah. you know similarly with uh katrina or like more recently there was a huge hurricane that like destroyed puerto rico right and like that was just a blip for trump right and like i don't know if that's just because it's regional or something like that 
Um, I mean, look, we were both pretty skeptical about how much this is actually going to change things. But I think my case for mm -hmm. it changing things is that literally 100% of the US population is caught up in this now. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're all at risk. I well, mean, things it, it, changed during 9-11, right? Things changed a little during the financial crisis, but not as much as they should have. So there are examples of profound change, though I think you can argue whether, again, that's damage or an adaptive response. Mm -hmm. I, 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 on the Puerto Rico point, actually, I, I do think it's important to note that uh, a lot of those people moved to Florida and they all, to a person, think that Trump is an incompetent buffoon, I think correctly. Uh, and that could very easily cost him the state uh, uh, this, this, this year. All of the people who moved to Miami and changed their voter registration to a place where they're no longer, you know, despite being U.S. citizens, no longer second class citizens. So that's that's going to be that's that's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, so basically, this is this is in many ways a much bigger and harder to contain issue than a lot of these other things. This is going to be something that um, affects everybody. It's, I mean, certainly, you know, we're all seeing the changes in our lives from from it quite directly. Um, most of us haven't had friends get sick yet. Um, but we might get there and then, yeah, that might have I know a uh, couple of people that are sick now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've heard of uh, a couple cases that fortunately turned out not to be the, the coronavirus. There were a few friends that had scares, but uh, I, I don't know anyone directly who's stricken by this thing yet. I have one that has an actual positive test and then a few people who think that they have it but have right. not been able to get a test and right. we may never yeah, know. Well, yeah, yeah. That's uh, there's definitely a lot of not able to get a test going around. Um, My dad's going to get it. Right, because he's, he's frontline. He's frontline in an ICU. Yeah, so I'm just, wow. I'm, I'm mentally preparing myself for, you know, for, for, uh, for that. And I'm not going to lie, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty scared. Yeah. I hear you, man. Yeah, that's hard. So Peter asks another question. Will the U.S. be able to enforce a lockdown for how long? How will democratic <laughs> lockdown be narratively distinguished from Chinese lockdown? Um, and, well, the, and, the, 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 sorry, finish, sorry, I apologize. Yeah, and, was, let, and let's, what, make was, this, let's make this the last question. There's no way we're going to get through everything, but um, the, it's... The, it's the, uh, yeah. There's let's, no let's chance of, of, of actually being able to enforce a lockdown in this country. That's absurd. I mean, all, all the, the only thing that's going to actually happen is you're going to do an, an enormous amount of unnecessary economic damage. I mean, this is this is another area where the libertarians actually probably deserve a little bit, little bit of credit. You know, the, right. the, the whole Hayekian, like you do not understand the economy, you cannot compete the economy is going to, uh, you know, that that whole thing is going to become evident to a lot of people when uh, when non-essential businesses suddenly become you know when when you realize that 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 shutting they down non-essential businesses yeah they're in this like you know how in the world how in the world are are our hospital cafeterias going to stay open when they're you know when when the people who sell their napkins are shut down i mean it's it is it is it is classic managerial hubris to think that we can go and actively shut down an economy without causing you know without causing enormous immediate uh potentially politically destabilizing harm um, the, the, the extreme lockdowns that we're seeing right now, I mean, the one in Chicago, they're, they're calling it the stay at home rule. But if you actually look at the, if you actually look at the implementation of it, it's martial law with a friendly face. 
And there's no way people are going to react well to that. Um, when the economic implications of that start to pan out, you will have riots in places. Um, you know, we've already seen the first coronavirus riots on, you know, on college campuses, uh, you know, with, with uh, you know, with kids drunkenly, you know, drunkenly brawling with, with, uh, with cops. I think when the, the, when the chemical factor uh, is not being able to buy food because your grocery store shelves aren't stocked in a week or two from now, um, you know, and not, and, you know, not a bunch of, of ethyl alcohol in your bloodstream, I think, I think we're going to start to see um, a lot of uh, uh, extreme repercussions. So I think yeah, it's it probably the messy. first time I'm going to heavily disagree with Matt here. Um, we've been sure. on the same page up until this point, I think. Um, yeah, I think, I think the U.S. is going to success, uh, successfully implement a lockdown. Um, I don't think that it has to be very long. Um, right. Just given what we know about this virus, even doing it for a few weeks will help enormously, right? And like a month, I think basically almost all of us can get through that, right? Like, I don't think we're going to see serious disruptions to food supply. I totally agree. If we did, then I would expect riots. But like, right. they've been rolling out over the course of this last week. And like, San Francisco is just quieter. Right. And like, I don't right. think it's going to be much different on the second week than the first week or the third week or the fourth week. Like people will get antsy and start going outside again. Uh, there might be like when enforcement starts having to happen, that that yeah. might be the thing. I could see that. But like the order, at least here in San Francisco and now all of California, allows you to go out for a walk. You just can't hang out with people. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so well, I predict that it's going to be pulled off and I think it will be. It will end up being pretty damaging to the economy, just what we're seeing on like unemployment rolls. Um, right. But I think the policy response to that economic dislocation will be the difference between, you know, mass unemployment and a temporary blip. Yeah, totally. I, I think well, the factors that are at play here, I, I, that, I mean, whenever anyone's looking at this, particularly from the perspective of somebody who has a remote work friendly tech job or whatever, uh, you know, I'm speaking for myself in this case. Um, you know, I, I think I think that there can be a tendency sometimes to uh, underestimate the, the extreme precarity uh, in which many uh, many American workers actually live, um, yeah. and that that I think is is what's feeding into my model. I also don't think we're going to have a month of lockdown. I think we're going to have I think we're going to have uh, several months of badly enforced lockdown that'll allow viral spread to continue. So I I, I don't know. That's that's why I. I I think if we did keep it to a one month somewhat effective lockdown, I think I think the outcome that you know you're talking about would come to pass. But I really don't think that's gonna be what we're gonna get because I haven't seen any indication that we have the institutional capability to do that well. Um, you know, whether it's delivering meals to old people who are locked inside, or whether it's you know, or whether it's uh, uh, having uh, consistent enforcement of quarantine rules by you know by our our. Uh, uh, you know, uh, famously excellent police forces. So, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, well, this is this is a good concern. this is a good issue to end on because it's uh, some bold predictions there, uh, some some controversy. I guess we'll see where it all plays out over the next few weeks. Yes, uh, thank thank you so much, guys, for coming on. This has been a fantastic discussion. I've really enjoyed your your perspectives here. I yeah, this was awesome. informative, and I've yeah, I've loved the I've loved the conversation that um, our audience has been having in the in the chat. Um, yeah, and so thank thanks as well to the audience for tuning in, um, and and thanks everyone outside for listening. 
Um, yeah, so this was great. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, thanks everybody. Adios. Yeah, bye.